visiting this morning. Uh, we are not super formal, so if you want to get up and get a, coffee, a cup of coffee in the middle, if you've got to use a restroom, don't feel bad about that. Nobody's going to look at you. Just go for it, because that's how we roll. Uh, our house is your house. Well, turn with me. This morning, we're going to break away from what we've been studying, which is the book of 1 Timothy. I wasn't going to teach from a different book, and I thought, you know, the resurrection, in many ways, is more important than even the birth, although without the birth, without the life, without the death, uh, you can't have resurrection, right? You can't resurrect something that's not dead, and you can't have something die or someone die that has not been born. So we celebrate Christmas, and we're excited about that. Um, and at Christmas time, here on Christmas Eve, we read the Christmas story essentially straight through, just remembering all that took place. But here we are on the day that just, just a, a couple of days ago, we celebrated Good Friday, which is really just a celebration, which is weird to the world, that we would celebrate the death of our leader. You know, you look at any country in the world, if their leader dies, people don't like go charging the streets and go, woohoo, unless it was like one of those dictator situations where they're like, glad he's gone. You know, they're hoping the next guy will be better. Or, or if your president gets voted out and everybody's like, woohoo, you know, the, the guy you didn't like is gone and now here's a guy that you do like. Um, but in all reality, Jesus' followers were not excited about his death. He had told them over and over again, I'm going to die. And Peter, the most outspoken of the group, actually rebuked him and said, oh, no, you're not. And of course, Jesus uh, said something very kind to him, right? He said, uh, get behind me, Satan. He called him Satan. You know, I, I don't know about you guys, but that's not like a term of endearment. That's not something that everybody's excited to be called. And so um, Jesus has died, and then uh, we... Many of us have heard the story over and over again about his resurrection. So we're going to recount that this morning. I'm not just going to read straight through it, but pretty much I'm going to. And then we're going to talk about the resurrection and how it affects us as believers and how it can affect us if we believe in Jesus. And so uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. And while you're turning there, I'm going to turn somewhere else because that's how I roll. Matthew chapter 27. And as you're turning there, I want to read something to you. Um, found in John chapter 16. You guys turn to Matthew 27. Don't want to confuse everybody. Verse 45. And I will read to you from John chapter 16. Jesus said to his disciples, John chapter 16. Now, I'm breaking away from tradition. Even in our little church, we got traditions. I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. Just basically because it kind of tells the story a little better. Um, I usually teach from the New King James when I'm breaking away. I'm being a rebel. John chapter 16, verse 16 says this. Jesus said to his disciples, In a little while, while you won't see me anymore, but a little while after that, you will see me again. And some of the disciples asked each other, they said, What does he mean when he says, In a little while you won't see me, but then you will see me, and I am going to the Father. And what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand. I like this about the disciples. Uh, Jesus said things to them, and they didn't get it. And they said, hey, uh, we don't get it. You know, I think sometimes we lock ourselves up and think, well, God expects me to get it right away. And the loving thing about the Lord is that he knows that we're not going to get it. That's why he repeats it over and over and over again. And so his disciples um, didn't understand. And in verse 19, Jesus realized they wanted to ask him about it. So he said, are you asking yourselves what I meant? 
I said, in a little while you won't see me, but a little while after that you will see me again. He says, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. It will be like a woman suffering the pains of labor. And when her child is born, her anguish gives way to joy because she had brought a new baby into the world. So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and then you will rejoice, and no one can rob you of that joy. And so I would submit to you that the resurrection really is like the birthday of a child. Jesus has gone through the birth pangs. He's gone through labor. No mother that's getting ready to have a child goes, Woo, I just can't wait till giving labor. That's an exciting time. But they want to have a baby, right? And so they're, they're willing to look through the suffering, the pain, the grief, the sorrow. And they're, they're looking forward to the joy that will come, which is this new life brought into the world. And so the church... We celebrate our birthday today as the church of Jesus Christ. We are born. This is the birthday. This is the exciting day. Jesus' birth, we celebrate at the end of December. The birth of the church, we celebrate here on Resurrection Sunday. So I told you to turn to Matthew chapter 27. Jesus' death. So in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, it says, At noon... Darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. And about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice. And he said in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken or abandoned me? So some of the bystanders misunderstood and they thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. So one of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink But the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him or not. So the prophet Elijah, we read in Bible study together this week, if you guys are reading along, the prophet Elijah, he's one of the prophets that never died. Scripture doesn't talk about him dying, but it actually says there in uh, in the, the history books that basically he was walking along and Elisha, his prodigal, his, not his prodigal, that's the wrong word, his prodigy, his, his basically his apprentice was following along and he wouldn't leave him alone. And the Lord had already showed him that he was going to take him up. He, w- he was going to go see God face to face that day. And it says a whirlwind came and took him up in a chariot of fire. And Elisha watched it. And so many of these guys are hearing what Jesus is saying and they're going, maybe he's calling out for Elijah to come get him. One of the other prophets. See, they didn't quite understand yet that this is God in the human flesh. And so uh, these men hear what he says, and they're like, well, he's trying to get Elijah, the most miraculous prophet of all time, to come get him. And, uh, and so they wait for that. And it says in verse 50, then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. And if you uh, know the other accounts, Luke chapter 23, verse 46, chronicles exactly what he said. He says, into your hands, Father, I commend my spirit. See, people didn't die on the crucifix in the amount of time that Jesus did. It would take days. It was brutal. Essentially, they don't die from the blood spilling from your, your hands or your feet. They die from suffocation because your body is so stretched out that your lungs, every time you breathe in, it's like you have a 50-pound weight on your chest and you can't breathe out because all of your muscles are pulled in this direction. 
They're not able to push out. And so it'd be like somebody sitting on your chest and every time you breathe in. So when Jesus says something from the cross, I want to emphasize this. It's important that we pay attention to what he said because every breath was labored. Have you ever seen someone on their deathbed and they're struggling to breathe and they try to talk to you and it's a labor. They have things they want to say to you and they're, they're giving all the strength that they have to say it. And Jesus is in this place where he's saying things that are very important and he's, he's telling all that are listening and witnessing his death. You know, when he says, you know, today you will be with me in paradise to the thief on the cross who expresses faith in Jesus. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to me, surely I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. Those words of grace cost Jesus a ton of energy to say. He wasn't just saying them like haphazard, like, oh, just think good thoughts and we'll be good. He was telling him something that that man needed to hear. And Jesus spent himself to say it. And he, you know, there's whole sermons on all the things that Jesus said from the cross. But he said to him, into your hands, Father, I commend my spirit. And, and words, other words that he said were, it is finished. And so he cries out this last time. It says he shouted out and he released his spirit. His death was quicker than anyone else's death. Most of the time they would actually, if they wanted to, to kind of, hurry up the process so they couldn't push themselves up to breathe anymore on those nails on the bottom, they would break their legs so that they couldn't assist themselves in getting that extra breath and keep alive for longer. Now, this was Passover, and it was a holy day, and so they would not allow the, the Greek, they had this agreement with the Romans that, you know, you're not going to kill somebody and leave them up there on our holy day because this is in our land. And so they said, no problem, we'll just break their legs. You know, they're like the mafia. And so they would break their legs, and then they would die quicker. Well, Jesus' legs were never broken, and that was prophesied that none of his bones would be broken at his death. And so he fulfilled that, and he actually had told Pontius Pilate just two days before, or excuse me, the day of, or the, the day before, he said, no one takes my life, but I have the authority to give it up. I'm willingly laying down my life. You know, because Pontius Pilate looked at him and said, don't you know I have the power to give or to take your life away? And Jesus said to him, no one has the authority to take my life. I alone give it up. And he, he was expressing that he was doing it willingly. And so he shouted out. But notice this, at the moment, the curtain, at the moment that he shouted out and released his spirit and died, Verse 51 says, at that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart, tombs opened, and look at this. The bodies of godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. It's almost as if the, the creator of it all is, is being so affected by the death of this one individual that creation is almost falling apart itself by the power that's released at his death. That sin being undone seems to cause a glitch in all the other systems of creation and just shakes everything, shakes the foundations of the earth. And I think that it's amazing that he accounts that there was, there was an earthquake and there was darkness from noon all the way to three o'clock. It was, you guys remember the, the eclipse we just had a you know, a few months ago, or however long it was, time seems to fly with 
two young kids. It seems like it goes quickly, but we had the eclipse, and we all, you know, if you had somebody to let you go outside and watch it, if you were at work or if you were at home, everybody went outside. They got the cool glasses that were selling for like $8 million on Amazon or eBay, and we all go out and look at it. We look at it because it's odd. It's dark in the middle of the day. And it's actually proven scientifically that that day when that happened with Jesus, it was not a solar eclipse. It was a supernatural event that signified something. God wanted everyone to know that this this event that's taking place is world-changing. And so as this is happening, people are being raised from the dead. And verse 53 says that these people that were raised from the dead, they left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection. So just... Three days later, Jesus has risen from the dead, and these people that are raised from the dead actually leave the cemetery, and they went into Jerusalem, and they appeared to many people. So the people witnessed these resurrected people walking around the city. So that you, couldn't, you couldn't not know that this took place. And so it says, the Roman officer and the soldier of the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. And they said, this man truly was the Son of God. And many women who had come from Galilee with Jesus to care for him were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And so look at this. In this passage, uh, without death, there could be no resurrection. If Jesus didn't truly die, then he did not rise from the dead. Uh, There were witnesses of his death, people that believed in him, people that did not. And then notice it also says, uh, I wrote there on the slide for you, witnesses are listed. People were at the event. This wasn't something that was mistakenly attributed to some fairy tale. There were people there who witnessed it, skeptics and believers. So uh, verse 57 goes on, and it says, As evening approached, Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate issued an order to release it to him. So Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a long sheet of clean linen cloth and he placed it in his own new tomb, which had been carved out of the rock. They didn't have tombs like we do where we would bury them in the ground. And maybe we could learn something from this. We live in Iron County. How many of you can dig in your yards and not find 18 rocks that completely make you need to change where you're going to plant the shrub? I mean, so in, in Jerusalem and in Israel, it's very rocky. Jesus talked about the, the, the shallow soil where, you know, seed would land and it would grow up really quickly, but then it would die because it couldn't take root. Well, in their land, they don't bury people below the ground. As a matter of fact, if you look at the valley between Jerusalem, there's a valley called Kidron Valley, the Death Valley, essentially. And on the other side, on the way up to the Mount of Olives, there are graves as far as the eye can see. And they're all in these stone or or concrete tombs that are above the ground. And one of the traditions is on top of the, on top of these uh, graves, they'll actually, if you go to see the grave every year, like we do sometimes on Memorial Day, although it's become something totally different as a holiday, they would take a stone and put it on top. They didn't have to go find a stone, they're everywhere. You think we have rocks, they have way more. So they hewn this, if, if you were rich, you would essentially be able to, instead of, you know, burying someone out in the middle, out in the open, they would hewn it into a rock. And then you would have multiple grave spots. This wasn't a grave for one person's use. 
you would be buried with your family literally in the same essentially rock room. And so they would roll the stone out of the way. They'd put your body in there and they'd roll it back. And then when someone else passed, hopefully it was a long time, so you didn't go in there and they stinketh, as the King James would say. And then you'd roll it open and you'd be buried alongside them. And so that's why the burial preparation, they would wrap you up, they would put spices all over you, so you would at least smell a little bit good, kind of like we put flowers around people at a funeral. And so um, they're preparing the body, and Joseph isn't just giving away his tomb like some might surmise, but he's actually allowing someone else to use it. Little did he know it was essentially going to be a short stay. You know, he wasn't going to have to really give up anything. And I want to point something out, just as a, a random thought, that um, when we give things to God, when we loan things to God, many times it feels like you're giving up everything. Maybe on a Sunday morning, it, it makes you feel like, I'm, I'm giving up my Sunday. It's the first day it's not been raining for like 82 weeks, it feels like, right? Um, but when we give something to God, it's really only a loan. Number one, he gave it to us in the first place. But number two, he's going to give us back way more than we could ever give him. Uh, many times we give things to the Lord and we feel like, I'm just going to give him my tomb and uh, I'm going to let him use it. And then just three days later, usually you find out, oh, he was going to replace it anyway. He's not even going to use the things that long. And that's really all it is. Giving something to God is really just, it's a loan to the only person that can really ever truly pay you back dividends and you don't even have to charge him interest. He gives back way more than we could ever give him. And so um, Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a long sheet. He placed it in a new tomb, which had been carved out of the rock, and then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and he left. And notice what verse 61 says. Both Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting across from the tomb and they were watching the whole thing. I, I love this because these ladies are the only ones there and the disciples who were with him for three years, where are they at? They gone. And so um, we, have these, um, we have these witnesses. So number one, he was married among the, he, he was not, not married, he was buried among the rich. According to Isaiah 53, 9, he would be numbered among the wicked and he would be buried with the rich at his death, fulfilling the prophecy from Isaiah. And again, the witnesses are listed. So the next slide is um, the tomb being secured. Matthew chapter 27 Verse 62 through 65, the next day on the Sabbath, the leading priests and the Pharisees went to see Pilate. And they told him, sir, we remember what that deceiver once said while he was still alive. And they quote Jesus. Now this is Jesus' enemies quoting what Jesus said. So even though they didn't believe what he said, they remembered it. And I find that interesting. Even his, his enemies uh, remembered what he said says that he said, after three days, I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. In many ways, they were better believers than the disciples who were with him and heard the same thing. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at the first. They'll actually, in a, in a way, deceive us and validate what he taught. They believed he was a blasphemer, that he was a liar. And, and Jesus was called a liar. But to anybody that would say to you, well, he couldn't have risen from the dead. I was watching the heresy, I mean, history channel, 
And essentially what they say, and you watch some of those documentaries, it sounds really great, and then they start disproving or trying to disprove the resurrection. But many times they're going off of things that are clearly stated in the Bible that these non-believing people set a guard up so that nobody could deceive them. They locked the tomb solid. They had two guards that were standing there, and those guards were under orders that if, if anybody came and stole that body, it would be their life in place of, that they would be killed. Those soldiers that guarded it were guarding it with their lives, understanding that if they failed, they would be killed on sight. So they're not just going to give it up to anybody. They don't care about the resurrection or Jesus. They want to save themselves. So they are not going to allow this body to be removed. And so um, it says there in verse 65, Pilate replied, take guards and secure it the best you can. <laughs> I find that an interesting translation because it seems like it implies Pilate wasn't really thinking that, it, hey, if he wants to resurrect, you're not going to stop him. If he said he was going to, who knows, he might. You know, they believed in all kinds of superstitions like we do. Uh, our culture is full of superstition. And so lots of people go, well, he might have risen from the dead. That doesn't make him God. Uh, I don't know what it makes him then. It makes him unlike anybody I know. But then it says, so they sealed the tomb and posted guards to protect it. So Jesus' words were remembered and believed by the religious leaders. And it's funny, uh, Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter 9, and Luke chapter 18 all quote this very instance where Jesus said, I will be killed, but I will raise from the dead on the third day. He told them all plainly, so they were all accountable to having heard it. And interestingly enough, sometimes God tells people things so that his enemies will be accountable to hearing it too. We are all accountable to what we know about Jesus. We're all responsible for how we respond to Jesus' words. An interesting note, again, Jesus' enemies remembered his words, and his disciples did not. You know, sometimes it's as simple as remembering God's words that will bring us comfort in our most uneasy moments. And uh, even Jesus' enemies are listed there as witnesses to the resurrection. So, Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. And I believe that this is many, for one of the biggest reasons that many churches, and maybe one year we'll have one up on the hill, a sunrise service. Frankly, with my kids as young as they are and as cold as it was this morning, that was not really a good idea for us. Um, but that said, many times the, the Sunday morning uh, Easter service is really centered around kind of this idea that these, these people got up early to seek the Savior. So early on Sunday morning, even though they got up to mourn, by the way, they didn't get up because they were celebrating they got up because their, their loved one had died, and, and in, in their Jewish culture, they couldn't go mourn on the day of the Sabbath. They were supposed to stay so many feet within their house, and they were following the law. So they didn't get up. They, they still obeyed the commandments of the Lord. I find that interesting. The one who said they, he came in the name of the Lord, their Savior, their Messiah, they had put all their faith and trust in him, followed him for three years. He dies, essentially letting them down in their minds. And they still followed the precepts of the Lord. They still stayed at home on the Sabbath. They followed the Lord as much as they knew how. So early on Sunday morning, as the day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. They're mentioned the third time here. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, and an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, 
rolled aside the stone and sat on it. And his face shone like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear when they saw him and they fell into a dead faint. <laughs> these, are, these are not like, you know, just kind of, you know, kids in high school that are afraid of their shadow. This is um, hardened, murderous, like mocking, have seen it all. These are Roman soldiers. They were there, the guys taking the nails and nailing them through a human being's hand. These are the guys that have seen the bloodiest, most detrimental wars you've seen. They were the ones doing it. They've seen people skinned alive. They've seen them burned. And they see an angel, one of the foot soldiers of God's heavenly army, one, sitting there. He's not gritting his teeth. His presence is just there. And they are so afraid that they pass out. They're like one of those fainting goats in the videos. You ever watch those? If you're not careful, you're watching those, you'll get in a wormhole on YouTube. Hours of fainting goats videos. It's hilarious. These guys essentially are like fainting goats. They're like, oh my, there's a video out there of this guy. He goes, what if humans were fainting goats? And he starts walking around all these normal situations and then you know, somebody jumps out of the bushes, he just passes out and falls over just completely rigid. But that's how funny it is. I mean, these, these are Roman soldiers. These men were men of war. They'd seen it all. They, they watched every horror film that you could. They didn't have films. They lived it. And when they saw this angel, one angel, passed out cold. So uh, God's army is stronger than man's army. But it says there, um, then the angel spoke to the women and said, don't be afraid. So these ladies walk up, they see the same angel, and the first thing the angel says to them is, don't be afraid. Don't be, don't, be, uh, don't be scared. He says, I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. But guess what? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come see where his body was laying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you to Galilee you will see him there. Remember what I have told you. So he says, hey, if you don't believe uh, an angel here, that I'm, and he obviously looked like an angel. His presence was, his, white, his garments were white as snow, and his presence was that of, of lightning. Lightning is pretty striking. Get it? Punny. And, and sorry. And then, then he gets up there, and, and he, says, he says, come in and see. Come into the tomb and see where his body was. Now, it's interesting because these ladies were there when they put the body there in the first place. Who better to come and look and see that his body isn't there? It's the same two people, a testimony of two witnesses. And, and they're there to see one of the most important events of history, this empty tomb. He says, now go quickly and tell his disciples. So the women ran quickly from the tomb they, notice this, they were very frightened, but they were also filled with great joy. Uh, they went to visit as soon as possible. But when they left, they were frightened, but they were filled with joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him, they grasped his feet, and they worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. He, he kind of confirms them. You ever been told to go tell somebody something? 
and you're kind of afraid of what it might mean when you get there. And, and Jesus meets them in the middle of their running. They lean down and worship them. They're so overwhelmed at what's going on. And Jesus just encourages them. He says, don't be afraid. Just go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. Essentially, he's setting up a rendezvous point. He says, get out of Jerusalem. It's kind of hot there right now. We need to go to a quiet place, a place that everybody knows, and let's meet again, and we'll talk about this thing. So Jesus is getting ready to meet with them. But look at all these witnesses to this event. Ladies, the two ladies that saw him buried, uh, the guards, the guards are witnesses. Uh, there's, I think there's actually even a movie that came out about one of the guards. Like, I wonder what he was thinking, you know. Um, and then the angel. Interesting, because at his resurrection, there's angels to witness to it. We think of the word witness, we think of somebody that's seen something take place. But a witness also testifies of what they've seen, right? So if there's a murder trial, you want someone that was there, but you need like another person so you know that that person wasn't just crazy and seeing things. Uh, but you also, at his resurrection, there were angels. And at his birth, to the shepherds in the field, they sang, they were witnesses to his birth, and they testified. So I, I keep mentioning the fact that there were witnesses uh, because I'm coming to a point that we are all witnesses. We don't get to witness the death. We don't get to witness the, the burial. Uh, we weren't there. We don't get to witness the resurrection, uh, but we can be witnesses to the resurrection power because many of you have watched your lives. The fact that you're following Jesus, the fact that, that you, you want to know him more is witness. It's testimony of what your life was before Jesus and what your life is now. And none of us are firing on all cylinders. If At the best, I'm like a beater that someone found out in a field and restored it. And I don't, have, I don't have the brand new paint job yet. I've got like the patina, they call, it's rust. You know, and he's, he's got the motor running and it's kind of getting rid of the misfires. And you know, maybe you know, car analogies don't go with you, but, but I'm a beater for the Lord. Like I, I choke out, I, I die at stop signs, I get a flat tire once in a while, but I can tell people what Jesus has done in my life. And unfortunately, many of you don't know me before. You didn't know me before Jesus. And so you've got to rely upon somebody else's testimony, right? Um, but if you knew me before Jesus, you'd be like, wow, you're like a Maserati now. You are firing on all cylinders because you were like, you know, you were found in a field, but there was just like a, a dust pile of rust. It wasn't, and, and so here we have these guys that are being witnesses to the resurrection. And many, I don't want to stop there though, because the resurrection is the receipt. The resurrection is the receipt for the payment that was made on the behalf of anyone who would believe in Jesus. Because, okay, great, Jesus died for my sins. How do I know that? Everybody dies. Well, when he doesn't stay dead, that's the power of God raising him back to life. That's the receipt. That proves that the transaction was accepted. You know, if you don't have a receipt, and you leave the gas station, you better go back and get one because they're going to send the cops after you. You know, the little, you ever have that happen? Like the receipt won't come out? I always go inside because I do not want the cops chasing me down. In a Jeep Wrangler, you don't get away. They're faster than you. So they are told the message, they witness the message, and they carry the message to the disciples. So the response, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples 
says they left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, look at this, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. So they literally saw with their eyes the resurrected Jesus Christ, the Savior, the man who they knew was dead, knew had been put in a tomb. And it says they, they were excited, they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them still doubted. Having seen with their naked eye, being witnesses to the resurrection, they still doubted. <laughs> Everyone in this life says, if I could just see it, I would believe it. And I'm going to testify today that the Bible says if you saw it, you may still not believe it. Many people have witnessed our lives being changed by the gospel, and yet they still deny the power of God. Seeing, they do not believe. But here's the deal. God can change that. Because some of these people, these 11 disciples doubted. And look at this in Matthew chapter 28. It says this in verse 19, or verse 18. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He told this to his doubting disciples. These guys were not on fire for Jesus. They were doubting at this point. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, he gave it to doubters. He gave it to sinners who had seen his three years of life, who had doubted his resurrection, and then he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He knew that they weren't ready yet, but he gave them instruction anyway. And I find that encouraging because many times I read in Scripture things that I believe Jesus said and I believe are true, but I'm not quite ready to receive all of it and live it out yet. And Jesus told it to me anyway. So the response is that some doubted, and Jesus commissions them anyway, but then we go to the ascension, Acts chapter 1. So just a few books over in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. This is what um, Dr. Luke writes down. Luke wrote the, the Gospel of Luke. He was a doctor, and in that day it wasn't like you're a doctor and so you're like in the high echelon of society. You're well-educated, but you're owned by somebody to be their personal doctor in the, in the Roman kingdom. But he wrote the book of Luke, and then he wrote the Acts of the Apostles. And in verse 3 it says, During the 40 days after Jesus suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. Think of one occasion where um, one of them was doubting, and he said to Thomas, everyone calls him Doubting Thomas, he says, look at the holes in my hands. Look at the hole in my side. He was risen from the dead, but he still had the scars from his crucifixion. And I love this because he didn't just do that, but in the same occasion, he sat down and ate a meal with them. He was somehow in his body that was not just a spirit, it was a physical body. He was able to eat a meal, fish and bread. So he's risen from the dead and he's still got to eat fish. I'm not a fish fan, at least not the way they ate it. They would bake them. I'll give it fried, fried fish only. I'm not baking no fish. Put some oil on it, maybe a little Creole. He replied, excuse me, I skipped ahead once 
when he was eating with them, oh, I should have just read it, verse 4. Once he, when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is the key. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and to restore her kingdom? They're still missing the point. They were still in wanting to, to restore the kingdom to Israel. But Jesus had to deal with their sin problem first. So he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. And they're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He shows this. You ever throw a rock into a, a, a sheen, straight up pond, and you just watch the ripples go out? He's describing Jerusalem, where they're at. Judea and Samaria, the surrounding area, and to the ends of the earth, everywhere. You're going to affect the whole world by your testimony of what I have done. And after this, he was taken up into the cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. And they strained to see him rising into heaven, and two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Uh, they were angels. And it says, Men of Galilee, they said, Why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So picture this. You're leaving your house. And you, you've left your kids there to do some chores. You're saying, Hey, I'm going to be back but I want you to do this list of chores. And what do they do? They stare at you with that, that look that makes your blood boil. And you're driving down the driveway, and you're like, they're not going to do any of that. And they're, or they're going to do it wrong. So Jesus has just told them, go do something. Here's your to-do list. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all the things that I've taught you. But I will be with you. I'm leaving, but I'll be with you. And they just stare at him. What just happened? He's got to send two angels. I just left. He sends two angels. It'd be like you driving down your driveway and then texting him going, get to work. You know, like, what are you doing? You're just staring up into the clouds. He's going to come back and you don't know when. Get to work. And so um, turn with me. Um, excuse me. So they still didn't get it. He promised the Holy Spirit. They're like, what's that going to do? And the Holy Spirit, I want to submit to you, is the witness. It's the key to our faith. To turn with me to John chapter 14, just to the left. Just to the left, to the left. Sorry. John chapter 14, verse 26. And I'm going to start. Oops, that's the wrong spot. John chapter 14, verse 26. And really, I'm going to start in verse 23. Jesus said to them, all who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. What I am telling you is from the Father who sent me. I am telling you these things now while I am still with you, but when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, and in your Bibles, maybe it says a different word, but the Comforter, but the word will be, the word in my Bible is advocate, and it's, it's capitalized. The third person of the Trinity is going to send the, the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit 
He will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I've told you. So you won't have to hear me say it again. The Holy Spirit will bring these things back to your remembrance. He says, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart, and the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Remember what I told you. I'm going away, but I will come back to you again. And if you really loved me, you would be happy that I'm going to the Father who is greater than I am. I have told you these things before they happen, so that when they do happen, you'll believe. And so fast forward to the book of Acts again in chapter 2. And we're going to see the effects of the Holy Spirit being given. The day of Pentecost. It says there in chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. And they were not meeting together because they were excited. They were meeting together because they were afraid. See, Jesus, their leader, had been crucified. And so they're going, okay, so we're, we're following that guy, and they didn't like him. They're not going to like us. They know we were following him before he was killed. Let's go hide. And while they're hiding, what do you do when you're afraid? Like when you're really afraid, if you've got any inkling of trust in God, even if you don't know God, people that don't know God all of a sudden pray when the, the, the cancer word comes up, right? They pray when, when someone is injured or in a car wreck, or they'll send good thoughts and vibes, which I don't think is really anything. Don't think about me. Tell God about me. He's the only one that can help me. But what, what needs to happen is that we need to learn to trust God. And he told them, don't leave Jerusalem till I send you help. Don't leave until I send the Holy Spirit. Well, how's the Holy Spirit going to help me? You're leaving me. You're going to send me this spirit, or some translations say the Holy Ghost. I need, I need Jesus with some skin on him. I need him to be with me in the situation. He said, no, 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 this is way better, because Jesus could only be in one place at one time. Remember Lazarus? They were all upset at him because he, he didn't come for a couple of days. If Jesus was here, everything would be fine. And then Jesus shows up and raises them from the dead and shows them they were wrong. But Jesus doesn't have to be there for the miracle. Jesus doesn't have to be there for the help or the remembering of his word. He sent the Holy Spirit to be his presence with us. He says, lo, I am with you until the end of the age. He said, I will, fit, I will spiritually be inside of you. You will be my temple and I will be within you, the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter 2, he says that. He sa it says, suddenly, verse 2, as they're praying in the upper room, suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of a mighty windstorm. It filled the house where they were sitting, and then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. And at that time, there were devout Jews from every nation. It's the time of Passover, excuse me, time of Pentecost. So it was the, the feast of ingathering where they would celebrate the harvest. Uh, 50 days after the deliverance from Egypt, God gave the law from a fiery mountain so that they would know how to live before them. And in the same way, 50 days, this feast of weeks, they come out and the Holy Spirit's poured out after their deliverance from sin by Jesus dying on the cross. So everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit, and at the time, there were Jews from every nation in Jerusalem. Excuse me, every nation that were in Jerusalem. And when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running. They were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. 
It was like Google Translation happened. And all of a sudden, they're not just hearing the message that's being preached, they're hearing it in their native tongue. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee. They were calling them slack-jaw yokels. These guys are from Mayberry. They don't know English hardly. They know uh, their own language, and yet we hear them in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, and Arabs, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And we all hear these people speak in our own language about the wonderful things that God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other, but others in the crowd made fun of them, saying, well, they're just drunk. (laughs) They were just calling them drunks. These guys are crazy. All they heard was babble, babble. But then Peter stepped forward. This is the same Peter that denied Jesus just a couple days before because he was afraid. The strong, big, burly fisherman, his life gets threatened. He's like, I don't even know that guy. I don't want anything to do with them. And it says in verse 14, Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen up. Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These guys are not filled with spirits. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And these people are not drunk, he says, as some of you are assuming nine o'clock in the morning is much too early. Now, we all know that that's not necessarily the case. I went to Rolla, which is known for being one of the biggest drinking schools. And back before Jesus, nine o'clock was not too early. So, I mean, in our day and age, maybe that doesn't translate. But what he's saying is these men are not drunk. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. And then he starts to expound upon these Old Testament passages that they never understood. Until just a few moments ago, Peter was afraid. He was thinking that all their hope in Jesus was in vain. And what it says here is that Peter starts preaching and quoting from the Old Testament. All these passages that he learned from a young age all of a sudden made sense. And it's not like he was up all night studying his Bible. He's a fisherman. He wasn't studying scripture all the time. He knew these scriptures. He had been told them, and in the moment that he needed them, the Holy Spirit gave them to him and gave them application. He quotes verse 17, In the last days God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark. The moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone, look at this, who calls on the name of the Lord in that day will be saved. There's no limitation. It's not talking about a certain people. He's talking about everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So he starts to quote scripture. He starts to preach to them. But in verse 29, excuse me, verse, let's go ahead to verse 36. G, Peter continues to expound, and he says, Let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, 
whom you crucified. That's a popular message, right? If you want to win people and influence friends, Dale Carnegie did not tell you to insult them. He said, you want to know what they know, you got to know your audience. But Peter gets up there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, this Jesus, who you crucified to, both, to be both Lord and Messiah, Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? We already killed him. What should we do? It's already happened. What, do we, what must we do to be saved? And it says there, Peter replied, each one of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. There's a word that's so important. Everybody talks about believing in God. But the number one thing that Jesus said, the number one thing that John the Baptist said before him was repent and believe. That means to turn away from the way that you're living, trust God and live the way he's told you. Repentance is more than saying you're sorry. I got a four-year-old daughter that knows to say she's sorry. But when she turns around and does the same thing again within the next 10 minutes, is she really sorry? I would submit to you, no. Repentance is more than expressing faith in a higher power. Repentance is believing what Jesus said and simply saying, Lord, I believe your word is true, but I cannot free myself from my sins. Only you can change my heart so it would convert my mind and I will make the decisions I should in order to please you. It's humbling ourselves. So he says, repent of your sins, turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and your children and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Can we save ourselves from our sins? The point is, save yourselves by believing in Jesus. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. And all the believers devoted themselves to teaching, the teaching of God's word, to fellowship with other believers, to sharing meals together with other believers, and practicing the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And a deep sense of awe came over all of them as a result, and the apostles performed miracles and signs and wonders, and all believers met together in one place. They held everything in common. They shared their goods with one another. They sold their property and possessions. They shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes from the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. And look at this, verse 47. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And look at this. Each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. The message is not about making a big church. The message is about growing the kingdom of God by just simply, Peter's just telling them what he has already believed and heard and he's just sharing with them what God has done through Jesus. And I would submit to you that the Holy Spirit being poured out wasn't just for those, those people. It was for all who believe. The Holy Spirit is given to us, and the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer produces fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And what it tastes like is joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, 
and self-control. And against these things there is no law. Because love. Jesus was love incarnate, so when we submit our lives to him, love should flow out. And love looks totally different than the world's kind of love. It's not lust. It's not selfishness. Love is a person, and that's Jesus. And so this morning I submit to you what he said there is that essentially the church has been born. We witnessed it by reading about it. But then uh, what I want to point out to you is in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what he said to them, and, and I need to turn there because I already shut my Bible on accident. Oh, there it is. Thank you, Lord. Luke is writing here, and he says, In my first book, referring to the gospel according to Luke, I told you, Theophilus, his master, about everything that Jesus, look at this, began to do and teach. Now, he's writing this after Jesus has died and been buried and has risen again. But he says to Theophilus, I told you about everything that Jesus began to do and teach. So, how is Jesus continuing to work? And I would submit to you, it's through you and I. As we surrender our lives, we give them over to Jesus, and we essentially let him do with us what he wants to do. So on this Resurrection Sunday, my prayer is that the resurrection would be witnessed, it would be testified of, we would be witnesses, and that it would be lived out at his resurrection power living in you and I. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony of all those who shared in today's reading. Lord, we know that you've called us to be witnesses. You told the disciples, you told everyone that they talked, you said everyone that they affected would be witnesses. So Father, we have the privilege of, of reading these passages and being affected by them, or we can reject them. We can be like the Roman guards who just were scared and passed out and moved on with their lives, or we can be like the ladies who heard what the angel said and they took off running even though they were afraid and they told the disciples who they, they knew wouldn't believe them if they told them. And then Jesus confirmed all that they said and showed up and met with the disciples. Lord, we need you. We cannot be witnesses unless we first witnessed and experienced the power of your Holy Spirit. And at the same time, uh, we can't make anybody believe what we witness about. So, Father, we pray that anybody we might speak to about you, that you'd go before us and help us to share even though people might not believe. Many of them will not believe. But, Lord, our job is just to testify, to tell of all that you have done in our lives. For anybody here today who cannot testify that you've done anything in their life, I pray for a special blessing for them that you would, in fact, touch them, speak to them, reach them, pour out your spirit upon them, give them understanding, lead them to the place where they understand they need you and they want to su surrender all to Jesus and give him his life, their life. Father, would you open up our hearts to receive you if that needs to take place? And as a result of that, would there be a testimony that comes forth from that? Not to testify to man's goodness or a certain church's goodness, to testify that the kingdom of God has come and touched my life and I am forever changed. Lord, make us witnesses. We love you and we thank you. We just pray that you bless all that takes place today. There's family gatherings. There's conversations that will be had. Lord, would you um, give us peace with our family members? Or would you bless our family gatherings? And Father, would you be glorified through all that we say and do today? In Jesus' name, amen.